0: Good evening. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. We're going to be in 2 Peter here tonight. And in 2 Peter, uh, this is uh, the last letter uh, attributed to Peter. And in it, he is writing and he's addressing his final words uh, to a group of Christians that he loves very dearly. And as he does so, you can imagine, it's, it's kind of like Second The book of Second Timothy, I always think of as paul 's last letter before his impending death, and we get our final words from paul in that that 's kind of like what Second Peter is for Peter uh, it, peter's recognizing that his life won 't go on much longer, and he is pinning his most important final thoughts to people that he loves and One of the key words that he'll he 'll use when he talks about what his goal is in writing is the word remember. Uh, he wants them. To remember what really matters, he wants them to remind. He wants to remind them of the most important things uh, for them to be able to carry on after he's gone. I mean, you think about about if you are facing your end, the people you love. What do you want them to know and to carry on after you are gone? What do you want them to remember about you, but also to remember about life and to remember about God? Uh, that's what Peter's doing in this, and and he's doing so in the context of false teachers who were trying to lead them astray. And so he doesn't even just get a a free range with the things he wants them to remember. He has to to remind them of certain things that will keep them safe and secure and steady in their faith through turmoil and through uh, people trying to deceive them and pull them in different directions. And so he addresses quite a bit. But one of the things that he addresses, and it's really, really important— is a concern that was probably developing and certainly would develop about how long it has been since Jesus left and has not returned yet. Because that's a, that's a question the early church wasn't given a clear answer on they weren't given a clear statement of this is exactly when Jesus is going to return. As a matter of fact, Jesus is pretty clear when he says that we don't know. You know, he says the, that uh, not the angels of heaven, not the Son of Man, but but uh, or the Son, but the Father alone knows. And so there were some things that, that we just don't know the answer to. And so like in the book of Matthew, Jesus gives several parables about the idea of a delayed parousia. You know, sometimes it's called a delayed second Coming, uh, where he talks about uh, virgins who some of them are waiting for the bridegroom and they only bring enough oil uh, to fill the lamp, but some of them bring extra bags of oil so that if they run out, they can keep them filled because it might be a while and we just don't know. He gives parables about uh, about the, the parable of the talents, where you're, you're uh, you know you have a certain amount of time that your master is away and you're supposed to be using the goods that he's given you, and and some people go out and are uh, you know, effective working. Workers during that time. Some, uh, or one, just buries it and does nothing with it. And, and each of those deals with the idea of being prepared and being ready for when a master returns, and you don't know when that will be. So the fact that Jesus doesn't tell us when it will be led to, a, I think, a wide range of thoughts about that. Some people thinking, oh, it'll happen next Tuesday. You know, some people thinking it'll happen really quickly. I think that was a pretty dominant thought, and I think that's probably a Probably a healthy mindset to have, uh, as long as you don't get carried away with it. What I mean is, if you live every day thinking he might be coming any minute, then you're probably going to live every day prepared for that to happen. So there's some benefit there. But the problem is that at the end of every day, there's a little disappointment that it didn't happen. And then after a week, after a month, after a year, after another year, after a decade, after apostles start dying and you start thinking, what in the world? Is he coming back? When is this going to happen? I really thought that it would be soon, and I'm I'm now an old, you know, I'm, I'm now old, and I'm facing my end, and is he, am I going to see him? And, and there's all kinds of questions that could be had about this topic. And so, when you read through Second Peter, Peter's facing the end of his life and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Is he struggling with that? Did he know it was going to be this long? Did, did he spend every day in those early months and years waiting and then eventually start thinking, you know what? we probably need some elders in churches because this might last a while, you know? Like, it, there are certain things that if Jesus is coming really quickly, you don't need to prepare for. Certain things you probably need to get in order if it's gonna be a long time. Church structure and elders and things like that are not overly necessary if Jesus is coming back soon. If he's coming back in 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, then you probably ought to have something in place for that time period. And, And so all of these are questions the early church had to grapple with. And apparently some teachers were getting to the point where they were saying he's not coming back at all. And so Peter, as he's facing the end, wants people to remember that even he can face his death with confidence Knowing that even if it doesn't happen right now, even if it doesn't happen for a thousand years, God is still in control. And he gives a theological framework from which to view the lengthy time in between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. And I think for us, living 2,000 years after the cross, probably it's a helpful reminder from time to time. How should we view this long delay? And so in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, that's what Peter's going to try to do. And it's a beautiful chapter. It's uh, the last chapter we have from him. And in this chapter, he gives some very helpful uh, theological, but then also just really practical uh, ways of thinking about the second coming and what you should do because of it. But the reason we're going to talk about it is because it also does tie in a little bit to our lesson this morning. Uh, Having hope in that future day where there is a new heavens and a new earth, and righteousness becomes the, the defining feature of God's new creation. Having that in your heart and having that as a daily re- reminder is an essential part of waiting for that day to come. And so, Second Peter chapter 3 is where, uh, is where Peter begins to do this. And this is chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, This now, beloved is the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So again, second letter. Uh, he's making a, a brief reference to the, the first letter, First Peter. But he's also saying in it that he's stirring up their minds by way of reminder. That should take us back to the first chapter of uh, 2 Peter, Peter in verse 12. And a couple of times in verses 12 through 15, he, he'll say chapter you know, verse 12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. I still want to remind you of them. Uh, Verse 13 says, I consider it right as long as I am still in my earthly dwelling and in my body to stir you up by way of reminder. If you look at verse 15, he says, and I will also be diligent that at my t- at the time of my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind or to remember these things. And so uh, there's a lot in here about remembering the most important things. Uh, in chapter 3 and verse 1, that's what he says. He's writing this letter to stir up their minds so that they will remember. And verse 2, and that you should remember... The words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and uh, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So remember the teachings that you heard from early prophets and from the actual apostles themselves. Don't let those teachings die with time. Remember them and, and go back to them. And, and he's writing some of them down. and So you can you can hold on to this and you can go back to it year after year and remember. And so having said that, verse 3... This is where he begins to address the issue that we were just talking about of how long will it be? He says, knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. Uh, they're saying, "Okay, yeah, there might have been a promise that he was going to come, but where is it? Uh, it sure seems like this world every day." The same thing happens, and it's always happened that way. The sun rises, the sun sets, we wake up, we go to work, we go home, we go to bed. Like, And it's just like we live in a world that doesn't change. And so he made this promise, but every day it's the same thing. And every day it always has been the same thing. Why are we thinking that things are going to change? It's a foolish hope. And every day that you think he's going to come, you're proven wrong. And so maybe just live your life maybe just get rid of that hope and quit living for that day and just live your life like people always have and it'll work out all right for you and you know what if 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 people are hearing that and are every day disappointed that Jesus isn't coming it becomes an easy idea to accept you can say you know what he's right if, if if we're going to learn anything from the past, it's that things are always the same. And so we can learn probably about the future that way also. And Peter... When he hears that, he thinks maybe they need a refresher on their history. Uh, maybe they need to remember something about the Bible that they're reading because things always, haven't always been the same. There already has been a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, and so he's going to describe what he means by that. Uh, one of the things that is important to note as you read through this chapter is the phrase heavens and earth." Heavens and earth. It's going to be used several times. Um, That's an important phrase in the Bible. Again, the very first verse of the Bible uh, is, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When you read through that creation account, it's fascinating. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 starts off. This is before God even says, let there be light, and we have a day one. It says, and the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So when you read through the creation account in Genesis 1, you don't have a day where God creates water. That's there before God says, let there be light. Uh, You have darkness and you have water and you have this formless, shapeless, void. It's hard to even picture what formless and void means when you're talking about the earth. But something completely chaotic and unstructured, seemingly covered in water and covered in darkness. And then God speaks light into it by saying, let there be light. And the lights come on. And now the fascinating thing about that is we're not given any description of what's... like explicitly causing that light. It's not the sun and the moon and the stars because that's day four. Uh, so we have this unspecified light that is shining on it. Maybe it's the, the light of God himself or of Jesus, his son, you know, we don't know, but, but, uh, but when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, um, you know, I think you might be getting some echo back to, to those creation narratives and that creation story, but you have God making light. And then day two, he creates the heavens. Remember, this is the story of him making the heavens and the earth. And the way he does that, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't like create any new matter. Apparently what he does is he takes the waters that the spirit was hovering over, the, the waters that was covering the earth, and he lifts some of them up so that there's waters up there and waters here on the earth. And then he calls the area in between that, it's called the firmament, but God names that heaven. That's the heavens. That's the space. He makes space for us to live in. And then on day three is the day that he makes the earth. Because what he does there is he takes that water that's covering everything and says he moves it over so that dry land appears. Dry land appears. And then that dry land he calls earth which is the word that you see in Genesis 1.1, the heavens and the earth. So he makes the heavens by moving water up. He makes the earth by moving water over. And that's a really important, that's different than we often think about it, even though it's right there in the text. That's exactly what it says. That sometimes it's different than we tend to, to imagine it. And then on the dry land that he calls earth, he makes uh, fruit trees start uh, popping up. And you have trees that are good for, for food and for sustenance. And then, So those are the first three days. And then the next three days, what he does is he fills the lights or the light with lights, a greater light to govern the day and a lesser light to govern the night and then the stars. So like when he said, let there be light, he then puts heavenly bodies and all of that. And then when you get to day five, remember the sea the waters and the, the the heavens well on day five he fills those with birds and with fish and then on day six the dry land that he called the earth he fills that with animals so so the first and then and then with his image us uh, and, and so the first three days are like creating environments in structuring and ordering that dark chaotic watery world in the next three days are filling it with bodies and with life Okay, so it's 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 an interesting creation story. It's important to keep that in mind as we read through the way Peter describes creation here in Second uh, Peter chapter three. Um, but God, a lot of the actions of God throughout the Bible, uh, they go back to. That creation story. And there's often little rem- like reminders throughout things that God does. That this is the God who creates. One of them that I just saw the other day for the first time without ever really having thought of it before. But that word in the creation story in Genesis 1 where it says uh, dry land. The, the, he, he moved the waters over so that dry land appeared. And the dry land he called earth. God moved water so that dry land appeared. Do you know where that word dry land is used elsewhere in the Bible? It's used of the water or of the, of the land in between the water in the Exodus story. When the children of Israel are leaving Egypt and they're going to the promised land. But there's all of that water in their way and there's the armies chasing it after them. What does God do? He moves the water. He blows the water with the wind so that dry land appears. And they're able to cross on it safely over the other side. The language in there of God moving the water and of dry land appearing is the language of Genesis one. It's it's a no new creation type of of language in this story, and that's that's language that you get throughout the Bible when God acts to save His people. You're reminded that the Creator God is the one who's acting on behalf of His people to to bring about salvation to them. Well, you see that same language uh, in in John chapter one at the coming of Jesus when. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and all things came into being through him. And without him, nothing came into being that came into being. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And and, uh, the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Like when you read through that first paragraph of John, you have the phrase, in the beginning. You have the phrase created or came into being. You have light. You have darkness. You have life. Those are all Genesis 1 phrases that are now being used to describe the coming of Jesus into the world. That's, that's a story where you should be thinking, okay, God's going to be active again. New creation is about to take place. Well, that will be important to have in your mind as Peter starts to tell the story of world history. If you say things have always been the same... You need a reminder of a couple of things. There are three different heavens and earths that Peter's going to mention here in 2 Peter chapter 3. He mentions, look at chapter 3 and verse 5. The long ago heavens and earth. In verse 5 he says, when they maintain this. Meaning when those mockers and false teachers say that, oh, things have always been the same. And where's the promise of his coming? And, you know, the the world's always as it has been since the day of creation. He says, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water by water. Notice the heavens and the earth right there in that passage. But that is the heavens and earth long ago. So that's the long ago heavens and earth. That's heavens and earth number one in the story. And he says that was formed out of water by water. What is he talking about? He's talking about Genesis 1, when there was the water covering everything. And he, how did he make the heavens? By moving water up. And how did he make the earth? By moving water over, so that dry land appeared. And, and how was the heavens and the earth made? Out of water, by water. Like that, that's, that's what God did. He used water to make the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. Uh, so it was like the dry land appearing. I want to be careful how I say this. I do think God created everything that there is, ex nihilo, like out of nothing, But in the Genesis 1 story, the way the land was created wasn't by creating new matter out of nothing. It was by moving water over so that dry land appeared. And so in 2 Peter 3, Peter says, the heavens and earth that used to exist long ago, they were created by God out of water by water. But that's not the heavens and the earth that we're in now. Uh, If you read in verse 6, he'll go on to describe that. He says, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. So he says that there was a heavens and an earth made out of water and then destroyed by water. What's he talking about? Well, he's read the first six chapters of Genesis. He's gone from creation to flood. And that long ago heavens and earth existed during that time, but it was destroyed. It was destroyed by water with the flood. And so he sees the heavens and the earth existing in several different ways. You have the earliest one, out of water, by water, destroyed by water. That's Genesis 1 through through 9, I guess, if you get to the end of the flood. And then they come off the flood, and then you have like this new Adam, Noah, and he's supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same thing is said to him that was said to Adam. Uh, and, And so we have a new story of the heavens and the earth starting again with a new Adam. And Noah then brings sin into it, just like Adam did, and brings curse into it. Remember, the first thing he does, I mean, he makes sacrifice, and then he grows a vineyard, then he gets drunk, then he gets naked, just like Adam was naked, and then uh, he is shamed uh, in in that, uh, and his son ends up being cursed, and the other ones end up being blessed. But you end up having the story of Adam retold in some new ways with Noah, with the first heavens and the earth to the next heavens and the earth. But that heavens and the earth that came into being after the flood is what he refers to in verse 7. After describing the destruction of the long ago heavens and the earth, verse 7 he says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. So the long ago heavens and earth was destroyed by water. Now we're in the present heavens and earth. And this one is not going to endure forever either. It will be destroyed as well. And he says it will be destroyed by fire. And so uh, when you keep in mind what those mockers are saying, they're saying, oh, things have been all the way as they have ever since the beginning of creation. And Peter's like, no, we're on heavens and earth number two now. (laughs) We had the long ago one that was destroyed by water. Now we're in the present heavens and earth. And just like that first one was destroyed by water, The second one will be destroyed by fire. And he goes on to describe that a little bit in verse 7 and following when he says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. So he has already argued that things have not continued the same every day since creation. You already had a heavens and earth destroyed by water. Now, because of his promise, there's another one. So his first argument against the false teachers is that they're wrong when they say things have always been the same. They haven't. God has already restored and renovated the heavens and an earth. But now his second point deals with the fact that we view time differently than God does. Uh, we every day think, well, man, it's been 24 hours. Jesus could have come by now. Uh, and then after a year, after a decade, after four decades, we think an entire generation has passed. And, 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 you know, I'm getting older now and all this stuff. But God doesn't get older and God doesn't view time that way. And so in verse 8, he begins his second point, uh, I think kind of defending how should we think about the, the long delay before the coming of Jesus, don't think about it in terms of, boy, this is taking a long time because God doesn't feel that way when he thinks about time. In verse eight, he says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years like one day that 's not to say god doesn 't understand the concept of time, God created time uh, and God you know the, he does move uh, throughout this world in time and, and, and he does work in time but god doesn't god doesn 't think man, this is taking forever <laughs> that's that 's not a thought that God has. Uh, we have that thought sometimes my kids when, when levi uh, the four year old is asking all the time when his birthday is, and it's not until June 25th, and uh, it seems like he is so ready for his birthday to come, Uh, and it seems like it's so hard for him to wait, and even, even, you know, throughout our lives, I think we understand that sometimes, like, when you're a kid, it was so much harder to wait for things. Now, we're kind of amazed at how quickly time goes, and, you know, I I feel that way, and, uh, and it seems like every year, it's like, Wow, it's going to be May tomorrow. You know that's that's pretty quick. That doesn't seem like it's been that fast already. Well, imagine an eternal God. Time's not hitting him the same way it hits us. Uh, and so, when you factor that in, that yeah, a day is as a thousand years, and then also the strange idea that a thousand years is as a day. It, or, or I mean, both of those are 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 interesting terms to think about. That for God, say you know, I guess it just changes the way you think about things. If we, if I think about my baptism and I think about how excited I was to first become a Christian, you know, that's something that I experienced a long time ago. And what often happens for us is the excitement of something like that day after week, after month, after year, it begins to fade. But with God, I don't think the reality of an event fades in his mind with time. The goodness of an event fades. Uh, God doesn't grow weary and grow bored. And, and so we might, throughout world history, when we even we talk about the, the death of Jesus. You know, that was a thousand years ago. That was two thousand years ago. You know, that was something that, that the world has moved on from them. But when you think about things from God's perspective, yeah, it might have been two thousand years But to God, it would be like only yesterday. You know, to God, it would be like, the. it doesn't fade with time. And so if Jesus' death to God was like only yesterday, well, even though it's been 2,000 years, who knows how long it'll be until Jesus is coming, but it might feel like only tomorrow. Uh, You know, and, and so to limit God to our timetables and preferences is to misunderstand the way God views the whole world. So Peter makes that point number two. The first point is God has already done this before. He did it with the flood. Point number two is, and God doesn't view time the way that we do with God. A thousand years is as a day as a day is as a thousand years. And then this third point is a really fascinating one. The third point I think is in verse nine where he says, the Lord isn't slow about his promise. As some count slowness. Some of these people are saying, man, God's just taking forever. He's being really slow. By the way, most of the complaints that we have about God deal with him not working fast enough. Uh, we, we, we have microwave ovens because the other ovens take too long. You know, we, it doesn't make things better. Uh, but we, we live in a world where we want things done now and we want them fast And uh, when we look at God, we want things now. When I pray, I want to see results immediately. Um, And God doesn't always work on our timetable. So how should we think about that? Is God lazy? Is God slow? No. Verse 9, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter says, let me give you a way to think about this. Think about the length of time, not as slowness but as patience on God's part. Think of it as opportunity to turn your life to him. Think of it as opportunity for other people in this world to come to know God. If God wants as many people to be saved as possible, then time is actually your friend uh, before Jesus returns. If you want opportunity and hope, then time is actually a beneficial thing. And so don't think of the length of time between the ascension and the second coming as laziness or slowness or that God has forgotten. God knows how to destroy worlds and and renovate worlds. He already did that with the flood. God isn't bothered by time. You know, a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. And for you, if you think it's taken a long time, Great. Repent during that time. Get your life right with God and grow closer to him during that time. This is a wonderful opportunity. Tell others about the fact that you can repent, that you can turn to God and he loves you and he's patient with you and he's forgiving. So this is time is opportunity. And so think of it that way. Then in verse 10, he he goes a little bit more into depth about that idea of the first heavens and the earth and the second, the present heavens and the earth. And he launches into the idea of this promise that we have of a future heavens and a uh, new heavens and new earth. Or, or a new heavens and a new earth in verse 10 and following. When he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning there's not going to be an announcement of it. Uh, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up or exposed. There's a textual issue there that pops up, and you might see a footnote in your Bible, or some of your Bibles might say different things there, but the idea um, of the passage is that as the first heavens and earth was destroyed with water, so this heavens and the earth, and uh, when it talks about the heavens, mine says elements. Some of your Bibles may say heavenly bodies or something like that. We're talking about the, gen- the stuff you read about coming to being in Genesis 1. Um, a lot of that stuff is going to be burned in the way that it was flooded uh, in Genesis 6. Now he's using the the example of fire or the the fact of fire to describe uh, what will happen to it. Verse 11 says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed with burning and the heavenly hosts or the elements will melt with intense heat. So he says, so if you're looking for this day, this day when Jesus will return, this day when uh, the present heavens and the earth will be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be? How ought you to live when it comes to holiness and, and your conduct? Maybe. We ought to be living every day with godliness and holiness and proper conduct because we're prepared for that day whenever it does come. It's going to come as a thief. We don't know when, but we ought to live as though we're prepared for it. You know, that's one of the benefits of not knowing is that you are then called to live godly every day. If you knew when it was going to come, it'd be really easy to, uh, to slack off until that day happens or, you know, to not take things seriously or to, to not live as God calls you to live. That might be too great of a temptation for us to bear. And so God keeps that to himself so that we will live every day knowing it may be the last knowing that God has something great in store, and I want to be a part of it. And I'm going to be ready for it right now, today, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, and every day thereafter. So verse 13, he says, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So remember, I told you about three heavens and three earths. You have verse 5, the heavens and the earth made long ago out of water, destroyed by water. Then you have the present heavens and the earth that exists now and will be destroyed by fire. And then you have this promise about new heavens and new earth. And if you're looking for a promise about new heavens and new earth and you're reading through your Bible, I think you're probably going to land at a right around Isaiah 65 is where you're going to find the promise of new heavens and new earth. In fact, the language that's used in Isaiah 65 about the new heavens and new earth is picked up in the book of Revelation, the passage we read this morning, where it talks about God dwelling among men and, and there being no more death there. In Isaiah 65, it's like these images are of a really long, blessed, good life. And by the time you get to Revelation, that has been expanded to life eternal. It's like the good promise of new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 65 is then taken uh, to amazing new levels when you read it through the lens of the book of revelation but right here he's relying on that promise of new heavens and new earth to form his theology about the heavens and the earth you have what god created out of water by water destroyed by water you have what we now live in to be destroyed by fire but that's not the end of the story for the heavens and the earth and that's not the end of the story for us we have a promise of new heavens and new earth verse 13 "...in which righteousness dwells, a heavens and an earth defined by and described by righteousness, not by the sin and the folly and the death that lives in the world that we are now in, or certainly was in that world that was destroyed by the flood. Uh, This world has sin. That world has righteousness. And that's the heavens and the earth to which we have our hope. So, verse 14, "...beloved, therefore, since you look for these things..." Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord, that lengthy period of time, that long period of patience, regard that as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you about these things. So what he's saying is, you know, you've read some of the stuff in Paul, and some of that's kind of tricky, but I'm trying to lay it out for you right here in a a way that, uh, that you'll get. Um, When you think about how long it's been, don't think, oh, God's forgotten about us. No, think God loves you, and he's giving you opportunity for repentance and for salvation. Regard his patience as salvation. Recognize God doesn't view time the way that you have, and recognize that we already have a model of how this works by looking at the flood. That's what we're living in now. It's not water. It'll be fire. But there will be a, a a cleansing or a destruction of the heavens and the earth that we're now on. But again, that's not the end of our story. It's not the end of the story of the heavens and the earth. But God still has plans where righteousness will reign forever and we'll be with him there. So live now for that new heavens and the earth. Live now in righteousness because we're We're people of the new creation. We're people of that heavens and earth living now within this old one. Uh, So show the goodness of that world now as you live and as you hope and as you wait eagerly and longingly for the day of the Lord. Uh, If there's anyone here who would like to make sure that you are prepared tonight for that coming of the day of the Lord, you want to make sure your life is right with God. We would love to help you, pray for you, encourage you in any way that we can. If you want to become a Christian, if you want uh, to have your sins washed away in baptism, if you want the prayers of the church, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.